on the night before Jesus was crucified, he gave his disciples a powerful symbol that they would utilize to remember and celebrate the salvation of Jesus Christ. And the church still employs that symbol today. And in this service this morning, we're going to look at that symbol. It's called the Lord's Supper. And it is filled with meaning. And it is powerful to participate in. Now I want to show you this from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. Turn there with me, Mark chapter 14. We're going to take a one-week break from 1 Samuel as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Mark chapter 14. We will begin reading in verse 22. I want to ask you this morning if you are physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of the Word of God. Truth with no mixture of error. Grateful for my Bible. How about you? Amen. Mark chapter 14, verse 22. The Bible says, while they were eating, he took some bread and after blessing, he broke it. And gave it to them and said, take it, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. After singing a hymn, they went out. To the Mount of Olives. Let's pray together. Father, we pause to acknowledge you, to acknowledge your greatness, to acknowledge your presence, to acknowledge our need for you. Your word says, Lord, that we are in all of our ways to acknowledge you. So as we, as we dig into the word of God today, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, Lord, we know that all is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One comes down. Holy Spirit of God, we ask that you would move in our midst, that you would transform us, that you would fill up our lives, that you would point our hearts to Jesus, that you would help us to be more and more grateful for the gospel. And we'll thank you and praise you for that grace. Lord, establish my steps in your word. And we ask and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. The passage right before the passage we read, we see that the disciples were gathered with Jesus in an upper room to celebrate the Passover feast, which was a feast instituted by uh, God uh, when he delivered the Israelites from the uh, bondage of Egypt, when he delivered them from Egyptian slavery. And it was a great, mighty move of God that we read about in the book of Exodus. And this feast, this Passover feast, was instituted to cause his people to remember what he had done for them. And this, this Passover feast foreshadowed another great deliverance, the deliverance that God would give us from our sin. 
See, in the Passover feast, a lamb had to die. And on the night of the Passover, they took the blood of the lamb and put it on their doorpost. And when, when the, the death angel passed throughout the land, if he saw the blood of a lamb over a doorpost, he would pass over that home in judgment. So God, through the shedding of blood, allowed his people to be saved on that night of judgment. And 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7 says that Christ is our Passover. If we uh, apply his shed blood to our lives, if we embrace him by faith as our Lord and Savior, on the day of judgment, God will pass over us and we will experience his glorious salvation. And so Jesus on this night they're celebrating the Passover institutes a, a, a new meal to celebrate the great deliverance from, from sin that Jesus Christ offers us. One New Testament scholar writes, By historically linking Passover and Lord's Supper so closely together, Jesus also made clear that what was essential in the first was not lost in the second. Both point to him, the only and all-sufficient sacrifice for the sins of his people. Passover pointed to this, the Lord's Supper points back to it. And so these two, these two celebrations are linked, Passover meal and the Lord's Supper. But here in the upper room, Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. In 1 Corinthians 11, we're commanded to continue observing the Lord's Supper as the people of God. So today, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Now, this celebration was meant to point the disciples, it's meant to point us to what Jesus did for us, namely his death on the cross. Now I want you to see three things about the death of Jesus that, that come from the symbolism of the Lord's Supper. First of all, I want you to see that the death of Jesus was a vicious death. A vicious death. Look what Jesus says in verse 22. While they were eating, he took some bread, and after blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take eat, this is my body. Very clear. The bread that they were eating symbolized the body of Jesus Christ. And notice, before he hands it to the disciples, he breaks the bread. The, the broken bread is a picture of the body of Jesus Christ that would be broken for us. You see, the death that Jesus Christ was about to experience was a, was a vicious death. After this Lord's Supper, this moment in the upper room, they would leave that room after singing a hymn, and they would go to a garden called Gethsemane where Jesus would pray and wrestle with the, the cross that he was about to encounter. And after he prayed there in that garden, he was betrayed into the hands of his enemies by the kiss of a friend. The Jewish religious leaders took him into custody and trumped up some false charges to try to condemn him to death. They were jealous. They didn't want people following Jesus. They wanted people following them. And so they went through this mockery of a trial to try to condemn Jesus to death. But they realized, we can't kill him. We're a Roman province, and we can't execute the death penalty without Roman permission. So they took him to the Roman governor of that area named Pontius Pilate. They said, listen, you need to put him to death. Pontius Pilate didn't know, didn't know what to do with Jesus, so Pontius sent him to the Jewish king, Herod. Herod didn't know what to do with Jesus, so Herod sent him back to Pontius Pilate. And Pontius Pilate found no reason to put Jesus Christ to death. And so, here's what he did. He said, I'll appease these 
Jewish religious leaders by just beating him. And so he handed him over to his soldiers. And one of his soldiers took out a, an implement called a cat of nine tails, which is a long piece of leather. At the end of the leather, there were pieces of embedded bone and glass. And they probably tied Jesus to a pole or, or laid him over a rock where the skin on his back was stretched tight. And that Roman soldier trained in the cruel art would take that cat of nine tails and lay it across the back of Jesus Christ. Every time he pulled the whip back, he would pull pieces of the flesh of Jesus with it. Flogging was a terrible, terrible punishment. The Jews had a law that you could not flog someone more than 39 times. The Romans had no such law. And he was beaten to such a degree that he was not even recognizable. Pilate brought Jesus out before the, the crowd of bloodthirsty Jews and said, Behold the man. In other words, isn't this enough? I've beaten him. You can't even recognize him. Let's let him go. But instead of the people saying, let him go, they cried out, crucify him. Crucify him. When they would not relent, Pilate ordered that Jesus Christ the Son of God, the one who had done nothing wrong, the one who did nothing but good all of his days, he ordered that Jesus be put to death. They took a rough wooden beam and laid it across his back and ordered him to carry that rough wooden beam to the top of a hill called Golgotha. He was so weakened by his beating and by the loss of blood that he collapsed under the weight of the crossbeam, and so they enlisted someone from the crowd named Simon to, to help him get it to the top of that hill. Once he was on the top of the hill, they, they laid him across that crossbeam, and they took nails probably around nine inches long, and they drove them through the center of nerves where the, the wrist meets the hand, and they nailed both of his hands to the cross. They, they nailed his feet to the cross. They lifted up that cross and put it in a hole. Psalm 22, in a prophetic passage speaking of the cross said that that the 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 jarring from this putting the cross in the hole was so violent that the bones of jesus came out of joint and from nine in the morning to three in the afternoon every time jesus christ wanted to breathe he had to pull up on those nails just to take a breath and he hung there suspended between heaven and earth he was experiencing the most cruel method of execution that the Romans could conceive. He was suffering on the cross. It was a vicious, violent way to die. And here's what I want you to understand. The anguish of the cross highlights the depth of his love. You say, wait, why would he do that? I mean, he was perfect, he was God, he did nothing wrong, he taught, he healed, he ministered, he touched lives, he changed lives. Why would he go through all of this suffering? Why would he go to the cross? Because he loves you. Someone might read the last few chapters of the gospel narratives and say, well, Jesus was a victim of circumstances beyond his control, but that could not be further from the truth. Over in John chapter 10, Jesus said, no one, listen, 
No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own initiative. He chose the cross because he loves you. He chose the cross because he loves me. He chose to allow his body to be broken so that he could die for our sins. It was a vicious death. And it shows us how much he really does love us. Listen, no one has ever loved you like Jesus. And the cross speaks that reality over your life. Secondly, this death was not only a vicious death, it was a vicarious death. A vicarious death. The word vicarious means taking the place of another or serving as a substitute. So Jesus died in our place. He died as a substitute for us. Look what he says in verse 23. When he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. He was dying for multitudes of people. It was a vicarious death. Now notice there that he says that this is my blood of the covenant. In order to make the promises of the new covenant available to us, Jesus had to die in our place. Over in Exodus chapter 19, we see the Lord instituting the old covenant with the nation of Israel. He gave them his moral law and his ceremonial law and his civil law. And when they ratified that covenant, when they when they entered into that agreement with God, they took the blood of a slain animal and sprinkled it on the people. And the shedding of blood was to teach the people, listen, you are guilty and the innocent must die for the guilty. This foreshadowed the, the death of Jesus Christ, the, the innocent one who would die for the guilty. And that, that old covenant was ratified by blood. But here's the problem. The people could not keep the old covenant. They were sinners. They had a sin nature. They, they rebelled against God. Over in Hebrews 10, 1, the Bible says the law could never make perfect. They could not make themselves right with God by keeping the law because they had fallen short of the glory of God. And guess what? We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And so God, in his grace, because people could not be saved by the old covenant, instituted a new covenant. It's foreshadowed in Ezekiel and in Jeremiah and in different places in the Old Testament. And God says, here's the new covenant. I promise that if you will embrace my son by faith, you will experience complete forgiveness of sins, and you will be transformed by the spirit that I will give to live inside of you. So the new covenant is forgiveness and transformation. And that that those promises are made available when we embrace Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And notice, just like blood had to be shed to ratify the old covenant, he says here, this is my blood for the new covenant. My, my blood must be shed to put this covenant into place. I have to die so that these promises are available to you. You'll never experience forgiveness if I don't die for your sins. You'll never experience inner transformation if I don't, if I don't bring you into a relationship with God. And so he had to shed his blood to, 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 to make this new covenant possible. You see, Jesus took our sin on himself and our punishment on himself. He says there in verse 24, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. The word many speaks of the multitudes of people that Jesus would die for. 
First John says that Jesus died for our sins, but not ours only, for those of the whole world. He died for many. He died for a multitude of people. This, ver- this word many also ties this passage into Isaiah 53, where it says that Jesus Christ would, would, would die in the place of many. Isaiah 53, verse 12. And so he's saying here, listen, I'm going to shed my blood for you. It's going to be a substitutionary death, a vicarious death. I'm going to take your sin on myself, even though I'm perfect, I'm going to take take your sin on myself, and then I'm going to die for those sins. The punishment that you deserve, God the Father is going to pour it out on me in your place. That's what the cross is all about. Jesus, who is perfect, took our sin and then took the wrath of God for us. 1 Corinthians 15.3 says that Jesus died for our sins. He was our substitute. Listen, we deserve to die. We're the sinners, right? But again, Jesus loves you so much, he took your punishment for you on the cross. So the death of Jesus was a vicious death. The death of Jesus was a vicarious death. And third, the death of Jesus was a victorious death. Look what Jesus says in verse 25. Truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So he gives them a cup, fruit of the vine. He says, you drink this now. It's, it's, it's symbolizing my shed blood, the blood I'm going to shed upon the cross. But understand, I'm not going to drink this ever again until... I drink it new in the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus understood that his death was not the end. Something was going to happen after his death. So what happens after his death? Well, first of all, resurrection, right? Jesus was buried, and three days later, early on a Sunday morning, he walked out of the tomb. He rose from the dead. He defeated Death itself, it, it proved that he was who he said he was, God on earth. It proved that he could do what he said he could do, give us eternal life. Listen, how can a dead person give you eternal life? Not possible, right? But he's alive, and he's defeated death, so he can give you and give me de- uh, life beyond the grave, beyond death. He, he rose from the grave, resurrection. Then he spent some time on the earth with his, his followers after his resurrection, And then we see in Luke 24, Acts chapter 1, that he ascended to the Father. He actually uh, went up back into heaven. The laws of gravity were suspended for him. He went into heaven, took his place at the right hand of the Father. He's there now as our high priest. But that's not the end. Jesus knew that after his death there would be resurrection, ascension, and reunion. He knew that one day he was going to come back. And gather all the church of God. Gather all of the redeemed through all of the ages. And bring them home to heaven. He knew this reunion was coming. That's what he's anticipating here in the Lord's Supper. I will not drink this again until that day I drink it new in the kingdom of God. He's speaking here, I believe, of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Spoken of in Revelation. Where all God's people get together and we feast and we rejoice as we experience the culmination of our salvation, where we gather together with all the redeemed, with our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's why we sing songs like, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we will sing and shout, what? The victory. 
Jesus understood that his death was going to be victorious. It would, it would be death. It would be vicious. It would be brutal. It would be immense. It would be filled with immense suffering. But he knew that was not the final word. He knew after the, the, the cross he would be raised from the dead. He would ascend to the Father. And one day there would be a great reunion of all of those that his blood saved. Those that embraced him as Lord and Savior. You see, there is remembrance and anticipation involved in the Lord's Supper. The Bible says that we're to do this in remembrance of Christ, remembering what he did for us on the cross. But also there's a, a sense of anticipation of the Lord's Supper because over in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, Paul writes, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, listen, until he comes. Every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we know we're getting closer and closer to that day when he will Come and gather all the church of God in heaven. We're remembering, but we're also anticipating what he is going to do. You see, his death was a victorious death. Because he died, we have eternal life in heaven in our future, right? It's a victorious death. So all of this is pictured in the institution of the Lord's Supper. A vicious, violent death. A vicarious, substitutionary death. And then a victorious death where he would bring us home to heaven one day. Now here's the question. How should we respond to the truths that are pictured by the Lord's Supper? Okay, wait. We see this in, we see the symbolism in the Lord's Supper. So wait, how do we respond to that? How do we respond to what Christ has done for us. I want to read you this quote from William Hendrickson, a New Testament scholar. I think he gives us three thoughts about how we respond to the truths pictured in the Lord's Supper. Number one, he says, it was the desire of our Lord, therefore, by, that by means of the supper here instituted, the church should, here we go, remember his sacrifice and love him. First of all, the Lord's Supper ought to cause you to remember what he did for you. And it ought to cause you to fall more deeply in love with him. If you look at the cross like we're about to do this morning, if you gaze at the cross like we're about to do, you see on that cross your Savior bloodied and beaten and bruised, hanging there for, for your sins and for my sins, and it doesn't cause you to want to love him more, something's not right. Something's not right. So as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we should remember his sacrifice and love him. Secondly, we should reflect on that sacrifice and embrace him by faith. Maybe you're here today and you don't have your eternity nailed down. If you were to die right now, you don't know if you would go to heaven or to hell. Well, I'm preaching a sermon right now. And after I'm through with my sermon, the sermon's not going to stop. There's going to be another sermon preached. It's called the Lord's Supper. When we take the Lord's Supper, God is declaring some things to you. He's showing you how much he loves you. He's showing you the price that was paid so that you could be saved from your sin. And so you need to listen to that message. It's about to be preached. And respond by embracing Jesus by faith, embracing him as your Lord and Savior today. And then third, Hendrickson says, we should look forward in living hope to his glorious return. As we celebrate the Lord's Supper today, it should... It should just make us homesick for heaven. 
It should remind us this, Lord, this world is not our home. Things are not like they ought to be, but we're His. And one day He's going to bring us home to heaven and make things the way they ought to be. A great reunion with our loved ones, a great reunion with our Savior should cause us to look forward in living hope. This supper reminds us of that. That's how we should respond to the Lord's Supper.